Hi everyone and welcome back. If you're a regular listener, you know that we usually talk about AI and the future of AI through the lens of capabilities. We talk about what new systems can do, what more advanced systems might look like down the road, and some of the risks and opportunities they might represent. But increasingly, it's become clear that ensuring we get the value we can from AI systems isn't just a technical challenge, it's a governance problem too. The processes that we put in place to build AI systems can have a huge impact on the systems we end up with, and more and more regulators are asking companies to demonstrate that their development processes follow certain principles and best practices. Now my guest today is deeply knowledgeable about AI governance, not only because he's worked with some of the world's biggest companies on regulatory compliance, but also because he's founded a startup focused entirely on helping companies keep up with new AI regulations. Anthony Habayab is the founder and CEO of Monitar, and he joins me today to talk about the problems and the potential of AI governance and the increasingly important role that it'll play in the future of AI on this episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. I think you're one of these people that allows us to kind of zoom out and take a broader look at um, the field of machine learning AI and also like its impact on people and how we can start to think about that from a more strategic and more long-term perspective as well. So I think really for people who are listening who are more technical, this is one of those conversations I'd encourage you to kind of lean into because it's probably something that you know a lot of us are missing when we're buried in the technical details all day and we were actually just talking about that before we started recording. So. With that, I want to start just by asking a bit of a biographical question. Like, how did you get into this domain of responsible AI and like AI compliance? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a, I get that question often because I'm not a data scientist. I haven't lived in overly technical enterprise software worlds in the past. Um, but I'm a pretty mission driven human in general. I like to spend my time doing things that matter. Um, through my career, I've really focused on things that have impact. I was in the recruitment space because I thought it was important to help people find jobs and um, help to bring digital marketing to small businesses because I think small businesses are at a huge disadvantage in sort of digital marketing. And you want to, I wanted to help these small business owners. And um, you know, I hit a moment in in my career and just general curiosity where I really became fascinated by hype around fourth industrial revolution. Um, but I started digging in, and I fundamentally do believe that AI ML will make our lives better. There are so many elements of our everyday lives that I would love to see automated, that I would love to see enhanced, and which can be enhanced through the use of data in model-based systems. Um, but being the person who's been fatigued as an intrapreneur in my career, I know companies won't just deploy this stuff. It's not that simple to deploy new technology in big companies. And so this excitement about opportunity, but this I've lived the pain of trying to cause big companies to create new technologies and innovation, I could see that friction point very clearly and became excited by, on a mission side, how can I help AIML realize this potential? But on a practical side, something has to be done to help support and realize that potential. And so Monitar is really the result of that singular mission obsession, I think it can make our lives better. And I want to have a part in realizing that. And the journey led me to a somewhat not sexy place of governance, compliance, and audit. This stuff has to happen. And nobody's technology enabling those pieces as it relates to AI, ML, and even non-ML modeling systems in yeah. many ways. Right, Jeremy? And so that's why we're here. 
I'm really curious, what are some of the, the big kind of constraints that most people wouldn't think about, especially maybe if they're like technical or working at a small, small team, what are some of those barriers that prevent companies from just like pulling a machine model off the shelf and throwing some engineers at it and getting it into production? Yeah, you, there's probably a few things that jump to mind first. I think first, let's consider regulated industries where I tend to spend more of my time because it's usually the regulated industries that actually have the greatest impact on our life, right? You think about finance and healthcare and transportation, right? As just examples, or even like employment laws around protecting, like things that are regulated are often regulated because they are such a critical part of our everyday lives. Right. And there's an interest in keeping us safe, right? So if you just simply think about the areas that have the biggest impact on our life, um, Nothing happens quickly in those spaces because there are multiple layers of internal and external protection to try and make sure that good is being done, right? And harm is not being accelerated. So we even look at like COVID. It is amazing how quickly these drugs got approved, but it didn't just happen immediately because those are heavily regulated spaces. So I think there's like a first thing that sometimes um, really excited data scientists that can cause great impact. Um, there's a, there is a struggle doing that inside of a regulated industry because no matter what you're building, nothing will move fast in those sectors that are heavily regulated. That's sort of a, a fact independent of the technology, right? Um, and then I think probably as of late, you know, Jeremy, you and the listeners are aware of this as much as I am. There is a heck of a lot of talk about the concerns of AI, right? Um, and I think that's creating a new friction that is going to slow down a lot of innovation um, because where we are not maybe leaning in enough about what are we doing to safeguard these systems and build controls in this void of conversation about that, regulators and the public and consumer protection are saying, wait a minute, this is a black box that you can't understand. How do you know this thing is being fair? I'm not okay with that. Let's push pause for a minute. And some of those pauses show up in like the European commission sort of trying to tell you literally how you can build your models. That, that seems like a really good jumping off point to start talking a little bit about the philosophy that different governments are approaching this stuff with, because it does seem like there are radically different views. Like the U.S. seems to have a much more hands-off kind of laissez-faire approach. Um, the the uh, European Union, they have GDPR. They also have these proposed AI regulations that kind of are, are in purgatory right now are being developed and, and everybody's kind of uh, arguing over what they should and shouldn't contain. What are some of the the like the philosophical lenses that you see dominating the discussion right now internationally among among countries? Yeah, you know it's interesting because I don't think these are new ideas, right? I mean, we've we've had a history of expecting good corporate citizenship and some degree of transparency and some degree of objective audits and verifications of finances or the safety of products. And we've had expectations of how you treat certain protected classes or individuals. So thematically, a lot of what we talk about in an AI context is not really new, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so if you look at GDPR as a construct or a framework that already exists and what it does there, or you look in banking at what the uh, SEC already might have in place or the the OCC policies, or you look at um, CCPA in California, and um, you could just look at so many existing regulatory, but also fundamental business principles that are not new. And all we're really trying to do now is really apply them into a technology that unfortunately 99.9% .9 of people don't understand. Right. right. Um, and so I, I think that 
sometimes I like to really simplify this conversation by, yes, there's a lot of people with strong opinions about AI ethics that are adding some great value to the conversation, but there's a lot of established principle and approach that companies understand around governance and risk management, um, about good corporate citizenship, about how you impact your stakeholders, right? That we can already be doing things with ML yeah. and AI that are not overly technical. And, and sometimes I worry there's this chasm between all the new talk of AI risks and all of the understood existing practices of good corporate governance and good responsible management. They don't always meet each other as easily as I think they could. That's a big thing we try to do with our customers and in the market is talk about um, this isn't totally unknown. There are new complexities, but principles are relatively similar. So like fairness, transparency, um, evidence of compliance, evidence of impact, right? Those are things that companies understand in many yeah. ways. And now they just have to apply them. What do you think? Does that, does that resonate? Yeah. It, uh, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. It, it's certainly, it's certainly consistent with my perception that the, uh, the real argument is when the rubber meets the road, like how specifically do we instantiate these philosophies into existing systems? Like you know, what is the code that we write? What is the, what are the, the capabilities, the functionalities that companies are allowed to use and which ones aren't? And then, you know, what do you do about privacy, that sort of thing? And it does kind of mm -hmm. seem sometimes like there's, there's some inconsistent perspectives, um, not only just between countries, but even within countries where you have a certain framework that might contain incoherent or contradictory terms that, um, that just cause a lot of confusion. Yeah, absolutely. I really, I really agree with that. And I think one of the things that I often talk to business executives about is um, you can't wait for some directive on this is what you have to do. There's a lot you already know you should do and can start doing. And, and there are a lot of emerging technologies and principles and practices that you could absolutely start hardening and enriching around your machine learning organization and your business to lean into to some of these problems. Um, can we're you not give some examples of some of those things actually? Because I think that'd be helpful sort of to get some concrete yeah. you know, things that companies could do today. Organizations already have enterprise risk management that identifies what are risks in the business and what controls mitigate those risks? That already exists in large enterprises. Technology organizations already have certain control paradigms that they use. Things like, am I SOC 2 certified? SOC 2 being a security and operational control framework that evaluates, does this company have people, process, and technology controls to reduce the risk of this system having problems, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's also like ISO standards that sort of look at in the hardware space as an example, is there a good production of this product? Are there controls in place to try to reduce this product being produced with flaws or things that can cause harm? So depending on your industry or geography, there are already many understood methodologies for managing risk, right? And those methodologies already have concepts of people oversight, process oversight, and objective verification of the person who bakes the cake, Right. really simply. Can't be the person who also says the cake tastes amazing, right? The person who builds the car doesn't make sure the car is built correctly. The person who writes the software doesn't necessarily say that their software is perfect, right? These are understood practices, but they're not always being applied in data science because in many ways, we're just moving past data science and ML being an R&D exercise. And so you have these isolated teams that have been tasked with solve really hard problems and build really exciting new experiences and capabilities for our company and our stakeholders. 
but we haven't built a lot of that organizational control into those teams yet, right? And so that those would be examples of um, there are likely enterprise risk management stakeholders that could wrap their heads around what are key risks that this project is creating. Here are some controls. I'd like to see somebody evidence. Now, how you do it, maybe it's in paper. Maybe it's automated, mm-hmm. right? But what are those risks and controls? An organization could reasonably develop based on how they already manage risk today. A lot of the key pillars of working towards a more safe, a more fair, a reasonably transparent system. And as far as you know, are there active efforts to kind of develop uh, one of these frameworks specifically for AI today? Yeah, absolutely, right? So like NIST is one example that we've provided some feedback towards. In the UK, you have the ICO, the FDA in the US has this idea of um, uh, GMLP, good machine learning practices, right? Where in mm-hmm. even the NAIC within insurance in the US, all of these groups are really um, working towards this idea of organizational governance, right? That they don't want to, this is where I worry about some of the European Commission stuff. In a comment you said earlier, um, we don't want regulation to literally tell us how we can build models. That is not a good outcome for innovation. What right. we would prefer are these principles and expectations of um, companies demonstrating. What are you doing? What are you doing? What decisions have you made to manage towards fairness? What are you doing to manage towards transparency, right? So it gives businesses the ability to define those things themselves and then evidence what they're doing to work towards them. That would be an ideal place for us to land um, uh, instead of us being in a situation where we're overly prescribing you know, you must manage your libraries in the following way. You yeah. must create pipelines in the following way, right? Features should be accessible in the following parameter or constructs. Like that's that's not going to work, right? Um, is my our opinion, at least, right? And I think many regulators don't want to go there because they will not have the ability to hire the talent yeah. to, to touch this stuff in the way that it might need to be touched for real under the hood evaluation. That, that feels like the unspoken problem in a lot of these areas, including, you know, you look at the SECs dealing with, with cryptocurrency and so some, of the, some of the stumbles there in, in various ways. You have the selective pressure on kind of governance bodies where they're not sexy places to work. So you don't tend to have like the Silicon Valley techies. Much more often, the Silicon Valley techies are focused on like finding ways around regulation rather than beefing up regulation. So this is, it's interesting that you mentioned this idea of fairness as being essentially defined by companies at this early stage while it's the Wild West. These practices that they're putting in place today are sort of like setting that precedent. Do you see a role for governments eventually to step in and say, hey, we have our own definitions of fairness. These are in some way kind of backed up by a democratic process. So they have maybe a little bit more legitimacy. Is there like imposing those top down? Like, do, do we live in a world where that might happen? I mean, like Canada is a great example of leaning in on this problem, right? I think it, it is it is absolutely taking an opinion on what fairness means, right? And I think that even in the U.S., there's opinions of what fairness means, right? Like equal opportunity, there's protected classes, right? Like these concepts of needing to protect certain classes or citizens at large, the idea of fairness in certain countries is absolutely a, a democratic or a nation principle, right? Um, but I think all, not I think, I know because we actively do talk to regulators, right? Mm. Um, There can be principles of fairness, but there's also a realization of 
um, what does that mean in the details? And that businesses need to be enabled and empowered to do some degree of self-governance and attestation of their good corporate citizenship, right? And yeah. so um, I do not hear regulators wanting to do like super deep data and forensic evaluations of these systems because to your point, they, they, they won't be able to, but they'd like to say, you know, for example, as the NAIC did, like here's our definition of fairness, right? Um, show me what you're doing to work towards that, right? Um, and that, that could be a really great mutual win where the regulators have asserted, this is what this means to us in this industry or this geography. But the carriers, the insurance companies, have the ability to sort of interpret and implement in a way that either does or doesn't meet that regulator's expectation, but more so that consumer's expectation. Right. right? Um, so I think that, yes, we will absolutely see and are already seeing state bodies and industry regulators stating opinions and expectations around these words like fairness. Um, you know, maybe we could spend a couple cycles, Jeremy, talking about what I think is a somewhat dangerous expectation of eliminating bias. I yeah. think that, that that phrase specifically is a loaded term that yeah, yeah, I yeah. think is dangerous, right? But this idea of fairness is a is a good one, but somewhat in the eyes of the beholder. Actually, to that point, like I remember we had um so Facebook's uh, or Facebook AI research's head of uh, head of fairness on, and he was talking about the challenges in mathematically defining fairness and the ambiguities. You know, so quickly this becomes political. But he was talking about how you know, do you is is fairness when an AI system fails with equal frequency for every different kind of protected class or every class uh, that you might be applying it to. Or is fairness when you just optimize for the accuracy overall across the board and just like kind of everyone, you know, gets a, everyone is viewed neutrally in the eyes of the algorithm type thing um, and, and every kind of possibility in between. But it very quickly hits philosophical bedrock where you're asking yourself political, ethical, moral questions that are that don't have clear answers necessarily. Hence the emergence of AI ethicists, right? And, and yeah, there right. are there are now many of them. But actually, that's a great example, Jeremy, which is I think we go too deep in the technical mm. execution of fairness, which he's making great points, right? Um, I think managing all of these principles in governance is really a business problem and does not need to be and cannot be thought of singularly. So if we want to use fairness as an example, if you take a life cycle approach to it, right? When you start a modeling project, the business says, we are starting this project because we hope to achieve the following. And then can create a non-technical control, which says, what is our approach to fairness in this project? They define, here's what we are doing with this model. Here's our opinion of what fairness means here. And then as they collect data, as they curate and nurture that data, as they build and develop that model, as they test that model, as they deploy that system, there can be a thread that that definition they've established up front can have touch points of what did you do in the data development, model development, model testing, model deployment, and operational stages of that journey that connected back to managing towards that principle, right? And, and that is a life cycle approach is something that regulators really like where they are at least able to see, you understand we care right. about fairness. You've incorporated this thematically into your modeling process and you have had both people touch points and technical touch points that work to cause a fairness, that work to cause a lack of or a mitigation of disparate impact, 
right? Um, maybe one of those things is technically, you literally perform an equalized odds test, which in the weeds of the technology thing that I think we don't talk about enough, that is a really good method uh, of looking at, you know, take two people, put them in the situation, they might be different, but do they both have the same chance of achieving that outcome, right? And there are technical ways to do that. But then there are also technical gaps. Like if you don't even know the person's race or gender, how do you statistically perform that test? We right. could go and the, the market does go really deep on all the technical nuance of this mathematically and statistically. But that process I just laid out, that is a really manageable process yeah. that can allow for best effort and evidence of, I thought about this risk. I built a plan and an opinion on what this should look like. And then I had documented evidence from my business team, my product team, my data science team, and my internal audit team right? In terms of verifying that we did our best to manage yeah. this, right? Like cars break down all the time. Medical devices don't work. Humans and no software has ever been built and humans make mistakes. So when you consider something will not go perfectly, eliminating bias is a false narrative. We can't achieve it, right? We can recognize and work to mitigate those risks. So I'd like to dive into that because that's something that, that you raised earlier and kind of teased a, a bit of a tip, tip of the iceberg situation there. So what are your thoughts yeah. on this idea that bias uh, can be or even ought to be eliminated from machine learning systems? Yeah, I mean, listen, take insurance as an example. Like there's some element of the insurance industry which is trying to identify a bias, right? Or, or form a biased opinion around your risk, right? Like, mm -hmm. is this person more likely to get in an accident or not? right? And the portfolio of risk that you carry will skew towards bias, right? In a non-personal sense, towards one element versus another. Like they need to de develop these opinions uh, about these things. Um, and so like within an industry, you already have this conflict of saying eliminating bias literally goes against some of the elements of how the industry works, right? But then from a um, human protection perspective of the idea of eliminating bias, um, you and I have biases, right? Every person has known and unknown biases. And so therefore for centuries, right? All the data in history that everything has been done um, is based on human biases. And so every kernel of what we know and the data that we use to apply towards building AI systems and ML systems is biased. Okay, great. I know your audience gets that and has probably heard that like 50 times and understands, oh, great. I'll introduce synthetic data and do all these things to normalize, right? But it is not going to be perfect. There is not a silver bullet for this. I have not found one piece of research or one researcher who says this thing absolutely removes bias. And I often talk to customers who say, is there anything? If anyone is trying to sell you a solution that says this eliminates bias, walk away, right? Um, because the team building your model will likely make some mistake intended or not, usually unintended because data scientists are generally like not trying to do bad things right? Um, you won't perfectly be able to cleanse all your data, right? And then as your model is in production, handling new things, it will learn certain behaviors or patterns, which might move in a certain way, right? So you need to sort of go into the use of algorithmic decisioning and AI and ML, just recognizing something is going to go wrong. Bias yeah. against protected classes is probably one of those things that no matter what guardrails you try and put in place, it will happen. So, so really the conversation should instead be, what guardrails do I have in place to try to mitigate, to identify when it does happen, and then to resolve once I identify that event, right? Yeah. Um, and, 
And that's really what we try to talk about, you know, in my company. But even when I'm like speaking with writers or, you know, folks across industry, I really feel strongly about reframing this discussion because um, I worry just like I worry about, we talk about black boxes too much and we mm-hmm. overplay the complexity of technology we're actually deploying in industry. That conversation in a conversation around um, eliminating bias, both to me feel like dangerous things that are going to create more concern and just and slowness to innovation than I think any of us would want. And they're both not needed because nobody is expecting perfection when it comes to eliminating bias. And at the end of the day, if a machine learning system is significantly improving our lives or bringing some new product to market, do we care if it's like a gradient boosted machine or a decision tree versus like some complex neural network? We don't. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, those are, those are things that I probably get on the soapbox a little bit about, but I think they're really important. Yeah, no, I, and I, I completely agree. I mean, I think there's the sort of um, snooty um, reductio ad absurdum version of this is just to say, well, look, um, you know what a fully, de- a fully de-biased AI system looks like? It looks like a random output. That, that's what f- a fully technically de-biased thing is, where you literally, you are not allowed to use any of the information that's contained. You know, and obviously this is a more nuanced and delicate debate about what kinds of inputs we de-bias, but it at least gives a flavor of the sorts of things that we're talking about doing these systems. I also think that there's this aspect that you raised at the end where you're talking about, you know, like what is the value we get from these systems? I think it is true that all too often we focus on one side of the ledger. So we'll look at a system and there's like this, this game that people get into playing where you get to point to one way in which a system is deficient or biased. And this justifies kind of us never deploying it. This should never be used and so on. Whereas in reality, it's probably net better for people, including the protected classes who may be disadvantaged in different ways by these systems to just have the system available at the very least rather than not have it at all. Yeah, I feel like AI has a PR problem sometimes. Yeah. Right. Where like we um, we don't talk about some of the benefits and impacts or they don't at least get celebrated are covered by maybe media sometimes as much as they could be, right? And we are in this cycle of just worrying about the fears. Like planes crash, they still fly, right? Um, We still have medical devices or drugs that cause adverse effects or impacts, but the benefit outweigh the known risk, right? Like we live in worlds like this all the time. Benedict Evans, I don't know if you know him, but he sort of like a Mary Meeker of doing huge PowerPoint decks that evaluate a bunch of different concepts in software and sort of emerging economies. And he he made this point really simply in his annual review last year. And maybe we could link to at least the screen for the folks listening. Um, It sort of talks about these major industrial revolution periods. And in large part, like software hasn't really been regulated yet compared Mm -hmm. to transportation or manufacturing or some of these other major industrial elements. So, you know, there is a lot of, um, right now we're in this moment of, I think, all right, software is everywhere in our lives, right? AI is seemingly coming in our lives. Um, We're having that pause of what are the risks of this? Because we're realizing it's so permeated, right? And so I think we will come out the other end of once again, realizing why we're so excited about all these things. And we will better celebrate the benefits. A company like Butterfly Network, to me like this, I love this example. Two thirds of the world doesn't have access to radiology. Like two thirds mm. of the world doesn't have access to radiology, right? And there are not enough radiologists in the world to scan and review all the scans that are put out there, right? So Butterfly Network takes a portable device 
connects it to an iPhone and allows you to do ultrasound scans and identify issues thanks to their AI and image recognition, like in the middle of a Saharan desert, right? Yeah. Like um, to me, that is amazing, right? So exciting. Can it make incorrect diagnoses? Absolutely, right? Yeah. Um, might it might it cause someone to go down a whole path of like care that that person didn't need to go down? Absolutely. But two thirds of world has zero access. Yeah. Right. Like that's I think that's sort of this ledger point that you're making, which is a really good one. And um, I also think it kind of when you're not encouraged to look at the the upside and actually run that calculation, at least go through the exercise. It becomes really easy to falsely equate different issues with AI systems, because all of a sudden, if like um, the most minor of biases is equally like equally justifies shutting down a system as a significant or important safety issue, then like you, you lose the, the measurement stick that you need in order to figure out, okay, where should we really focus our attention and the public's attention on things that matter a lot more. So like these, these things that are um, much, that have a lot more potential for like virality on social media, for example, things that speak to some relatively minor issues when you compare them to like a Tesla running somebody over and killing them or, you know, so, some actual like risk of life stuff. Um, some of that nuance I think gets lost in, in this, this conversation. Yeah, I agree. Actually, like, you know, use finance or insurance as examples, right? Like, um, actually, use let's use employment as well. In all three of those areas, historically, humans have made decisions about do you get credit or not? Should you get a job or not? Right? Do I approve your claim or provide insurance? Yes or no? Right? Um, I, I would actually argue there is way more prevalence and opportunity for bias in those human-based yeah. decisions then if you actually build a model with certain controls, it might still have biases, but in, in a more controlled and transparent and mitigating uh, in a way that is more possible to be mitigated, right? Like yeah. that is a thing I fundamentally believe in. Like we can actually build more fair and more performance systems leveraging data yeah. in ML, right? Like let's talk about that for a minute, right? You literally can tell me that all of these agents in financial bankers and hiring managers are not immediately screening based on how someone looks or where they've gone to school or something that might not be as material to that specific condition. Whereas in a data-oriented model, you can be super intentional about those pieces. Like, I think that's a great example of, we don't talk about maybe that point enough. We can actually build better, more fair systems and literally explain how that happens, right? Right. And actually, so so this reminds me of a, a conversation that was being had at the time G GDPR was coming out and people were saying, well, look, um, you know, there, there are all these great regulations about your system must be interpretable, it must be explainable and so on. Um, and, uh, and the discussion was about the extent to which that might actually outlaw the use of the human brain because human brains are not intrinsically explainable. They are completely opaque, they're black boxes. You know, when, when I ask you like, why did you deny a bank loan to this person? Yeah, you can give me an answer, but we're all just kind of pretending that that answer maps onto the reasoning you actually applied. Whereas duplicity, deception, dishonesty, like all these things that humans can deploy in responding to those questions, can't be done by AI systems. So th there does seem to be an opportunity here for more clarity, a, a higher bar effectively being set for these systems, which isn't a bad thing, but it's just, I think the apples to apples implication that, that somehow, as you say, these like insurance brokers, these humans are giving real reasons for, for what they're doing is, is a little deceptive. Yeah, I, um, I don't know, I'm not familiar with the credit scoring process in Canada. Right. But like here in the U.S., we have these these FICO scores and there's these three credit agencies that like are the entire source of everybody's like, what's your credit worthiness? What's your financial sort of acumen, if you will. Right. Um, and and in, the, in that context, um, you know, there is 
when I want to check my credit score, I get these super vague. These are the things that most contribute towards your current right. score. Yeah. They're not like Lime, GradCam, Shap, Anchor. They aren't intra-model. Like these features, if they were moved this much to the left or right, would have influenced your score in the following way. And I don't want that. Like yeah. I wouldn't know what to do with that, right? But that industry isn't getting crushed for, I mean, there's a lot of issues with it, but like we as consumers have gotten pretty comfortable with like, all right, you gave me a general understanding, right? And mm -hmm. so um, I think the same holds true in a lot of like, ML, where, um, and actually IBM in uh, Georgia Tech, um, the human-centered AI lab, just did this research. I read it last week and I, I shared on LinkedIn about it. It's fascinating to me, where they did this really deep multi-year research project that took two control groups, AI-informed, so sort of technical audience, and AI-uninformed, a non-technical audience, and worked through how those two audiences receive the ideas and the tools mm -hmm. or the methods of explainability. Both of them struggled, but in different ways, right? And so I, I, I encourage reading the paper for anybody working in the space and thinking about explainability. This is another one of my sort of pulpit points is explainability is a dangerous word. You use the word understanding, and I think it's the right word, right? Like we very much need to align against the stakeholders and what do they want to know? So in my credit example, I'd like to know, are there things I could do to maybe improve my score? Are there thematically certain areas that impacted what my negative treatment might have been here. So if you think about life insurance as an example, and you literally look at BMI, which is a very fair evaluator of people with higher BMIs, maybe more towards an obese scale, it's scientifically proven that they are more likely to die at an earlier age, right? Yeah. Now, in, in the United States, and I, I don't know on a, on a global scale, but I know from data in the US, African-Americans have a higher BMI on average than Caucasians do. And mm -hmm. so if you are simply looking at approvals and pricing for life insurance against two cohorts, right? Um, on one level, you might see higher pricing for one cohort, right? But if you don't have transparency into the factors that most influence that pricing, for example, this cohort had on average 85% higher distribution of BMI than the other. Yeah. Take, take that into fairness principles. This life insurance company could say, here's what fairness means. It could say, these are the factors that are most important considering BMI being one of them. It can then record every decision that it model, the data that it used, record every decision that it model made, and then be able to say on an Anthony Habayev level, Anthony Habayev's BMI was X. And then show in this other cohort, this cohort's BMI was Y. Therefore, we've already said that this is a valid factor and it can be involved. The philosophy there being much more like show your work than like use the specific definition, which makes sense in you know the context we've been discussing where it's harder for regulators to kind of you know dive into the details, um, which actually does bring up another thing, which I was really curious about. So we live obviously in the era of like huge language models, GPT-3, uh, DALI, that sort of thing. And, um, and we're seeing a consolidation of compute power and in, in the hands of a limited number of companies. The government doesn't have, it lacks both the technical ability, uh, the, the people to replicate these systems and the scale of like compute resource allocation they would need. Um, this seems to create another kind of issue for transparency and maybe it's resolved by the sort of process level stuff that you've discussed. Maybe that is the solution. But I'm curious for your thoughts about how 
governments could actually regulate industries or regulate systems that they can't even replicate themselves to kind of play around with? Yeah, you know, it's, I'll take it in two parts. I do think process fixes a lot of this, right? So yeah. I think that this is where one of those moments, if you put yourself in a room with that's full of technologists and data scientists and machine learning engineers, we're going to focus on model deployment, model building, and yeah. infrastructure approaches to mitigating the risk of ML, which is a thing, right? And ML ops is a really exciting space that sort of serves those stakeholders, right? But these risks we're talking about are a business level right, and a corporation level and sort of a human level problem. And so many of these risks can be addressed and managed through good process and people orientation, right? Um, and so, you know, we believe that strongly as a company, I believe that as a human, and back to an earlier point, there's plenty of precedence in complex technology or manufacturing environments where the people in process oversight is disproportionately the control versus the last mile element of the production. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think that that will hold true as you do think about. All right. We do have types of modeling and um, sort of compute methodologies and providers that are more opaque for sure. Right. Um, I tend to hold the opinion we're not going to see a materiality of those overly opaque and not reproducible systems being used in consequential situations until we've solved for removing some of the opacity. Right. So mm. there are some I do. I know there are really exciting things happening that are nearly impossible to reproduce. Right. Like I even talked to some customers about this thing you're doing over here. I can't create a counterfactual test of that. Right. I can't necessarily save the state in all dependencies and all of the layers of this thing in a way that allows you to do a future like situational audit. Right. But that is like three percent of yeah. everything that's really happening. Right, the other ninety-five percent, um, you can sort of record the binary, record the dependencies, understand the features, understand the training that was applied to this thing, save all of those things, containerize all of those things, and sort of make it so that we you know what we could bring this thing back up in a future time. Right, and um, now then there's older technology where maybe you can't do that, right? Like Visual Basic on top of Excel right. or something yeah, yeah. like that, right? Like, so there's this place in the middle that as the market matures, I'm confident there's amazing work coming out of academia that is helping us to solve like complex neural network reproduction. Then there's also platforms like actually in your neck of the words, right? Like Domino does some really interesting last mile on the edge model deployment yeah. that sort of like really distills these complex things into a smaller unit and does it in a way that makes it reproducible. And that's why when you use Domino in certain edge cases, the reproduction of that model is more capable than other places, right? That's an example. Like I think innovation will solve some of these last mile problems, but the huge majority of yeah. any consequential decision being made by what people will call MI, but really is somewhere between, you know, complex machine learning and a statistical model. Right. Yeah. Those things, those things are pretty darn reproducible and governable and auditable. I really do appreciate is, is that distinction between, let's say, like, you know, you look at the open AIs, the deep minds of the world with like AlphaFold 2 and like, you know, Mu Zero or whatever. And, uh, and in fact, GPT-3, which has companies being spun off on top of it. And some of them have raised like tens of millions of dollars already. So they are going to become the future, yeah. but they remain distinct, like kind of their, their own distinct category of concern from the kind of 
the bulk of like 99.9% of industrialized machine learning where certain basic principles that are already more or less agreed upon uh, can just be applied through the processes you're describing. I feel like that distinction is a really important one because it seems to come up in different ways. Like people yeah. want to have a conversation about like uh, about mundane AI and then they pull in like cutting edge frontier AI research and it just muddies the waters. Yeah, it's almost as a joke, it's like, are you are you tracking the venture economy or the real economy, right? right? Like those are two different things, right? Like in sort of venture to your point on, they've raised this much money and a bunch of this audience is probably the venture community, right? Because a lot of ML and AI is, is living in that space and looking at capital to accelerate vision, right? I, I, the market has not caught up to what some of those things are fully doing and they will, right? But yeah. even if you look at um, explainability from a technical perspective and you look at what are the best generally accepted or current methods for taking certain types of ML and explaining them to cause some degree of understanding, they are open source academic principles like yeah. RedCam, SHAP, Lime, Anchor, right? Like those things are um, not commercial businesses, right? Yeah. Those are things that came out of, um, out of like open source in academia. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we do have a bit of, and we, we I've done some content on this point lately, which is actually really trying to encourage um, executives, like don't oversell what yeah. you are doing. You can be innovative without doing this type of modeling. You can have impact without doing this type of modeling. Talk about that and celebrate that. And that's okay, right? Because the lay person like Anthony, right? Is not going to appreciate the nuance of the type of, you know, ML or AI you might be applying here. I'm interested in the impact, right? Yeah. Which is your point earlier. Right. And talking about impact. And, and it's an internal PR problem, too. One of our customers did an interesting exercise that any data science leader on, on this podcast, I would encourage to do. Figure out the per head economic impact to the business of your data science team. Mm. So, like, look at the projects that they're doing. Right. And look at what those projects contribute towards and put like a PL value on each of those heads. I think that'll really change the paradigm a little bit internally of the, instead of the business freaking out singularly about bias and fairness and transparency, which they should be concerned with, help to balance that conversation by you having developed, these are the models that have been built. These models have caused X, these models have influenced Y, and this is the value of those pieces. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of companies doing that. And that's without that, you're going to get a huge paradigm shift right now into nothing but worry about, are you applying good practices? How are you building controls? What are you doing? It doesn't, uh, it's not gonna allow for the partnership that I think a data scientist would want and will probably cause a lot of frustration. Maybe you decide to go elsewhere because you don't think people appreciate. I don't think a lot of the business can translate impact in the same way that the data scientists might be able to. Mm. What are some of the techniques that you found useful in terms of like valuing the per head work of a data science team? Because that seems like a, a really interesting challenge. Yeah. So part of the reason companies struggle to do it is they give folks a project that haven't started with what are the goals of this project, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is tied to governance as well. So governance and good business management should really live in concert. When you're going to start a project, what is the project? What are we starting it? What are our goals? What are the risks? Right. And then when you're collecting the data, like, why am I using this data? What's good about this data? What's bad about this data? As I'm building the model. So there is sometimes an upfront piece missing in many of these efforts, which is what is the reason I'm starting this project and what is the impact of this project? Yeah. So let's assume you have that. Right. Um, I wouldn't say it's as much of a technical exercise as it is 
a business exercise, which is I built this model that is a part of this business unit, or it is contributing towards this product, mm-hmm. right? And here is its role within that business, right? So for example, we have increased the speed of approving or denying people by X, and that say this many people hours, and the value of that people hours is Y. Or we have introduced this new line of business fully built on this model, and this line of business is now worth X to the company, right? Or it might be in the fraud sense, right? We've identified these many instances of fraud with this application that would not have been caught otherwise, and the total sum of that fraud that has been identified is Z, right? Those are just a few really simple examples. But I don't think that because you're so in the weeds of building this model, you don't actually pick your head up and say, hey, let me go see what impact this thing had. Yeah. Right. And let me raise my hand and celebrate. I did this. Right. We did this. So it probably falls more on the product leaders or the heads of these ML organizations to really prioritize doing this work on behalf of their team. Yeah. But it it is a thing I'm not seeing enough in enterprise, um, which will then cause, I think, some challenges. And it's some of the it's some of the most challenging product leadership work as well, right? Defining good metrics for success, like coming up with with things that genuinely do measure the contribution of a team. This is like, to some degree, it always falls into this like uh, this trap of Goodhart's Law that we've talked about on the podcast, where at the moment you make a metric into a target, it ceases to be a good metric because people find ways to hack it. And something as fuzzy as, especially like an R&D effort, when you know it, it, nothing has actually been built yet, and it's not clear where this might be going, you know people can throw around numbers, and it becomes all very hazy. But even the exercise of trying to put a, a, a value to your contribution, I think, is like just—it's so invaluable because you—it tells you about how your project could fail, what failure might look like, what success might look like. Um, just generally seems like, as you say, good business practice all around. Yeah, listen, I'm cheating a little bit because I, I do focus from a business perspective on production. systems. I focus on things that are getting deployed and having last mile impact on business or consumers. And so in that context, you know, it's probably a pathway to this is more direct than in research, right? But I think there's also some element of R&D, which is understood, like, I'm doing this without knowing what the impact will be yet, right? And that's understood, right? It is a discovery expenditure, right? Um, And so I probably focus my comments more on you know, production deployment of applications. I think the math behind it though works just as well if you're talking about expectation values and expected returns rather than just like the the concrete realized value. It's just sort of like, you know, it brings in a different kind of a more of a forecasting component, which, you know, might make it more challenging, but the principles seem sort of similar. You're thinking about what's the benefit that we could get from the system and make sure that you keep that in mind as you also consider what are the risks, what's the downside, you know, what are the biasing kind of considerations here? all this kind of makes me think of what AI regulation, AI governance more generally is going to look like into the future. If we project, obviously, this is a dangerous exercise, but uh, let's just wave our hands around a bit and, and project to say 2030, about 10 years down the road. What do you think is going to be in place? Like, what do you expect governments to come out with in terms of requirements from companies? How do you expect companies to be responding to those requirements? Yeah, yeah, I think we touched on it a bit earlier. So probably we'll just pull back something I think you and I had a bit of a connection on, which is um, it won't be reinventing the wheel, right? We actually, we have an AI governance council and um, a couple of the members of that council are former regulators, right? Commissioners of of, of regulation in, in certain industries. And, you know, in working with them, there are a lot of existing patterns of regulatory and consumer protection that are principle-based 
that I think will just make their way to AI like we discussed earlier. There will be some expectation of defined fairness and show how you're managing towards it. There will be some general expectation of um, define, well, transparency and how you're managing towards it, right? Mm -hmm. Some expectation of um, you're defining the risks and you understand potential uh, impact on safety and what are you doing to manage towards safety, right? Um, And then also like security, right? Like Mm -hmm. that you understand that there might be security implications of the data and the way that your models work and what are you doing to mitigate those? And as, as pillars or as principles, you know, fairness, transparency, um, uh, compliance, safety, um, and security, those themes will be layered onto this technology like any other, I would say, sort of major system or, or industry that is impacting our everyday lives. Um, the, the, yeah. the more things change, the more they stay the same, essentially. That's so true in so many places, right? And I think that like, um, I feel pretty confident we'll see that. And, and I, I think we're already seeing a lot of that signaling in when you look at the language that's coming from places, right? Um, yes, there's a new technology complexity, but principally as humans, we want certain fundamental things, right? And um, there'll be a lot, there'll be decades worth of innovation and industry change and people opinions on literally how you work towards those principles, but the principles I think are relatively known and we'll see those continue to play out and we'll continue like every industry. We will try to be more safe in how we build cars. We will try to be more fair in how we um, humans make decisions about employment. We will try to be you know, more, um, uh, more safe in how we build and manufacture products, right? Those are always going to evolve just like these will always continue to evolve. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a nice, refreshing kind of 10,000-foot uh, view of the whole space and, and some of the things that are going to remain consistent. I think that's helpful as well you know, for companies thinking about the stuff like there's a sense that people are going to be really perturbed and that regulations are going to, are going to hit them really hard. And it's, it's probably these are some good guiding principles as you start to think about you know, what can I do to anticipate some of this. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts here, Anthony. This is a, a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, Jeremy. Thanks so much.